Before I read the scripture today, I want to say a bit about it. We're going to read from the weird and wonderful Song of Songs. In all the eight chapters of Song of Songs, there is not one mention of God. There's no reference to religious ritual. There's no mention to God's saving works in Israel's life. Instead, Song of Songs is a window into private life. It's a window into the world of thoughts and intimate conversations and mutually enjoyable sexuality. Song of Songs is the only biblical book in which a woman's voice predominates. It's the only biblical book where we really get this unmediated female voice. In Song of Songs, we read about the experiences and thoughts and imagination and emotions and words of, a, of an anonymous woman, and she and her partner are excited about each other. Phyllis Tribble, the great biblical scholar, describes Song of Songs as a, a vision of human intimacy that mends what was broken in the Garden of Eden. In song, she says, we, we know that we're created by God for mutuality and harmony. Two people in a verdant, blooming garden celebrating one flesh. Without shame, the couple in songs treats each other with tenderness and respect, neither escaping nor exploiting intimacy. They embrace and enjoy it. Their love, Phyllis Tribble says, is truly bone of bone. And flesh of flesh, it's an image of God that is very good. The voice of my beloved. Look, he comes leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing in at the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away, for now the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth its figs. The vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the covert of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch us, the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the cleft mountains. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for crying out loud. You and I have bodies that need love. We need someone listening to us empathetically. And we need more 
We need someone saying to us, I love you, and we need more. We need someone providing for our physical needs, and we need more. We need to be touched skin to skin. There's a boatload of science out there, a lot of it having to do with infants who do and do not receive love and touch and how they do and do not flourish in proportion to love and touch. But you know this without any science. You know it in your body. Your own body at the core of your being longs for and thrives. It comes alive when you receive the love of another being. Our poets have been teaching us about the emotions of love for as long as they've been shaping our words into songs. And today, we know more about the physiology of love than ever before. Would it surprise you to know that the brain in love is going berserk? No, you knew that. Anthropologist Helen Fisher has shown us that love expresses itself in the part of the brain that wants things. No kidding, right? Love is a need. It's a wanting. It's not the sex drive. It's even stronger than that. A person in love experiences physical symptoms like a hunger, like a thirst, like an addiction. Love is a consuming bodily need to be with the beloved. Love makes you weird. We sing, we dance. We lose ourselves. We take great risks all to woo and to court one another so that our need for love will be met. Love blesses all of us, and love leaves none of us unscarred. By the time you reach your early 20s, 95% of us will report that we have either been rejected by someone we truly love or we have rejected someone who truly loves us. It's joy and heartbreak, pleasure and pain, all wrapped up in one. Now, somewhere along the way, Christianity picked up the idea that this kind of intimate love was either scary or dirty. That our powerful drive for intimacy with another human body somehow ran at cross purposes to the spiritual life. We've carried forward too much of the Apostle Paul's flesh-bad, spirit-good dualism. We've got a tradition that, that has gotten filtered through, through the sexual paranoia of St. Augustine. Don't get me started on St. Augustine. Our American culture hasn't helped along the way. Like we seem to cheapen everything holy, including sexuality and desire, by making intimacy something we're supposed to consume for our personal satisfaction. So let's cut it out. We've got to figure out how to reclaim the biblical vision, which is that sexuality and spirituality belong together. Both are expressions of intimacy that are fundamental to you and I becoming ourselves. Thank God for the Song of Songs. Right? We always forget this book is in the scripture, but it's always been there and it always will be. This most unique of books which weaves together spirituality and sexuality wonderfully. Now commentators have, have historically interpreted the Song of Songs as an allegory, as a symbol of the relationship between God and God's people. Interpreters have tried to read everything in songs as a symbol. In chapter 1, the beloved's two breasts were described uh, as the law and the prophets, the Old and the New Testament, Christ's mercy and Christ's truth. Now there's merit to a symbolic reading of Scripture. 
But I think only if you hold it in tension with the fact that this is quite plainly the story of two people mutually enjoying each other's bodies. Biblical scholar Ellen Davis says that we need both symbolic and literal readings of the Song of Songs. She says the sexual and religious understandings of the song are mutually informative. Each is incomplete without the other. For humanity's religious capacity is linked with an awareness of our own sexuality. Fundamental to both, she says, is a desire to transcend the confines of the self for the sake of intimacy with the other. Hear that again, right? Fundamental to both your spirituality and your sexuality is the same desire to transcend the confines of yourself for the sake of intimacy with the other. We need to love. We need love with God and love with our beloveds. A few years ago, some of you know that NDPC hosted OWL. OWL stands for Our Whole Lives. It's a sexuality curriculum for young people uh, in middle school, and OWL aims at doing a bunch of different kinds of things. Number one, it makes uh, the reality of our body parts plain and how they develop. Number two, it helps participants to clarify their values, to build capacity, to talk about their own sexuality openly and honestly. OWL also helps participants understand and appreciate that intimacy has social, emotional, and spiritual aspects to it. OWL teaches us that, that we are created in God's image. God made us good, and our sexuality and our sexual diversity is part of that goodness. Our church hosts this class with adult members from our congregation serving as mentors so that all of our young people will know they have a supportive and affirming environment in which to learn about this crucial part of themselves, to know that the church cares about their sexual development along with their whole being. When I got to talk to participants and mentors and parents after the course was done, their responses made me want to cry. So grateful. All of us want this kind of environment. We are all trying to reweave the torn fabric of sexuality and spirituality to take this powerful human drive that we all know and let it live, not hidden somewhere at the margins of our spiritual life, but closer to the center. We want to be able to say out loud that sex and intimacy are good and beautiful and holy but to say also that not all sex and not all intimacy is good and beautiful and holy. And we say that not because we're, we're scared or prudish, but because intimacy, we know, is the most powerful and poignant of all relational encounters. Intimacy is not about body parts colliding. It's an expression of your humanity. It's full of laughter and full of heartbreak and full of foolishness and full of tenderness. In intimate relationships, we can choose either to hide our true selves, and if we do so, to be subjected to control or objectification, or we can reveal our true selves and learn how to trust, learn to be found trustworthy, learn to be vulnerable and honest. In intimacy, we can choose to hurt others, or we can choose to heal them and heal ourselves. 
You remember Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul, I don't know whether to love him or hate him. But in that great hymn to love that begins, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous or boastful or rude. He concludes that the apex of love is to know and to be fully known. That is what intimacy can be for all of us. At its joyful best, intimacy requires mutuality, the meeting of souls. Rowan Williams, who's the former Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Anglican Communion, says that mutuality is, quote, the dangerous acknowledgement that my joy depends on someone else's and theirs does on mine. Well, now it's starting to sound like Jesus has something to do with our sexuality. Loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. And it's true that walking in the way of Christ, learning to see and love the self and see and love the other in the way of Jesus, the receiving and the giving of grace, these are all preparations for our own intimacy. William's essay is called The Body's Grace, and I encourage you to find it online and read it. He says this, I can only fully discover the body's grace in taking time, the time needed for a mutual recognition that my partner and I are not simply passive instruments to each other. Such things, he says, are learned in the fabric of a whole relation of conversation and cooperation. Yet, of course, he says, the more time taken, the longer a kind of risk endures. There becomes more to expose, and a sustaining of the will to let oneself be formed by the perceptions of another. Properly understood, Rowan Williams says, sexual faithfulness is not an avoidance of risk, but the creation of a context in which grace can abound because there is a commitment not to run away from the perception of another. Now, I know when theologians start talking about sexuality, it can sound like some dream world, right? This relationship that Williams describes may sound like a dream. It may not, they may not sound at all like the kind of relationship that you have or the kind of relationship that you may have left behind in your life. The plain truth is that relationships are hard, the same way that learning to become ourselves is hard. We make mistakes, we force our beloveds to adapt to us, and we resist being forced to adapt to them. Relationships can become power struggles or stalemates, and when they do, the grace can go away. And intimacy without grace is just body parts colliding. The good news is that all of us, whether we are in an intimate relationship, or whether we want one, or whether we are recovering from one that became harmful, we all can find nourishment in that each of us is in an intimate relationship with God. Yes, your relationship with God is intended to be one of intimacy, of joy and delight and good pleasure. 
God loves you. We say that all the time, but I think most people think that it's in that sort of selfless agape kind of way that Jesus talks so much about. Like, of course, uh, God loves us in that way, but God loves you. And there's a good chance that that love is erotic. Eros. The longing for union with what is beautiful and good. Eros. The fusion of two halves becoming a whole. Eros, the dance of lovers with one another. That is the love that God has for you, you who are God's beloved. It's Christianity's mystics who are more often inclined than many of us to see God as a passionate lover who will settle for nothing less than our reciprocation. God desires you. God has a consuming need for you, the beloved. Richard Rohr writes, It seems to me Christianity has put a major emphasis on us loving God, but in the mystics, I consistently find an overwhelming experience of how God loves us. God is always given, incarnate in every moment, and present to those who know how to be present to themselves. It is that simple, he says, and that difficult. To be present in prayer can be like the experience of being loved at a deep level. This idea, this peculiar idea that God is a lover intoxicated with you, is, whether you like it or not, at the core of Christian theology. God loves you. God wants nothing more than for you to return that love. All of our worship, all of our service, flows from our gratitude for God's love for us. Rowan Williams again. Grace. Grace, this great current that flows through our tradition that gives us life. Grace depends in large part on knowing yourself to be seen in a certain way. As significant, as wanted. The whole story of creation, incarnation, and our incorporation into the fellowship of Christ's body tells us that God desires us. The life of the church is about ordering our relations that we see ourselves as desired, that we are the occasion of God's joy. Hear the scripture again and ask whether this is not the voice of God speaking to you. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For now the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth. Arise, my love, the time of singing has come.